So I want to I want to try something uh, before we get started. Um, all right, ready? When I say cognitive, you say bias. Cognitive. Bias. Cognitive. Bias. I did not even a little bit think that was going to work. Okay. <laughs> so that's the show. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> Philadelphia. Um, okay. So this is Welcome to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas. We are here at Indie Hall. We are here at the Philly Podfest 2019. Um, and I just want to thank you all for coming out. I want to thank Indie Hall for hosting us. And our location is actually... Very relevant. Um, real quick, I want to say some of these sponsors because I know if I don't now, I will forget, and that would be a shame because they're helping make all of this happen. So, uh, Indie Hall's podcast, Junto, I am going to thank them up top. Uh, Tattooed Mom, which is also one of the um, uh, venues for this amazing event. Uh, the National Liberty Museum, World Cafe Live, New Media Touring, Fireball Printing, Everything is Awesome, the podcast, Obi Media Podcasting Services, Philly Banner Express, Tea House Screen Printing, Bridge Set Sound, the Philadelphia Podcasting Society, uh, all work to make this festival possible. Thank, uh, I'd like to give them all a big round of applause. Um, and also, it'll be much harder for people to skip that because it came at the beginning of the podcast. I know how you are. I know how I am. Um, okay, so we are here at Indie Hall, and our guest today um, has a very special relationship with Indie Hall. Special guest, would you like to uh, tell us your name and your relationship with this place we are in right now? Thanks, Dave. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Alex Hillman. I'm uh, one of the co-founders, co-founding members of Indie Hall. So this place is my fault. <laughs> um, and Alex and I have been uh, friends going way back. I was actually there when the name Indie Hall was invented by a mutual friend of ours, um, Lauren Gallanter, uh, and when Indie Hall was just something that you were giving talks about at small, like, little impromptu conferences in people's living rooms. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, a little creative gathering outside of... I was out in Germantown, I think, and I was at a point where I felt like... The, I did not know where the creative community was in Philadelphia. I had a, an assumption... There was other creative people like me. I just didn't know where to find them, so I'd go to literally any gathering I could find. Um, one of the ones that I went to, I met Dave. Dave was giving uh, an early version of his Links as Language talk, uh, which you, you may have come across in his compendium, uh, and, and we've been friends ever since. And in a lot of ways, some uh, long other long-term relationships within the Indie Hall community were also forged within that room. So we got some history, Dave. Yes, um, which and it's all come down to this. Um, so one of the things uh, I wanted to, um, one of the reasons I wanted to have Alex on the show is that he has spent the past 13 years? Yeah, 13 yeah. years. Bar Mitzvah uh, season yes. coming up. <laughs> uh, 13 years building out this amazing community. And I know from my study of uh, cognitive bias that anytime you try to get a whole bunch of people together in one place to do anything, uh, bias is the inevitable result. So I want to chat with you about a few of the biases you've had to kind of wrestle with um, over, the, over the time. So the first one that comes to mind is when we talked about last season uh, called in-group, out-group bias. And the fact of the matter is, I could sort of go through this room and say, uh, you, you're group one, you're group two, you're group one, you're group two. And by the time I get to the end of the room and I say, okay, everybody in group one, go over here, everybody in group two, go over there, just that alone you already start feeling better about the group one folks if you're in group one, and you start feeling a little bit worse about the group two folks, and vice versa. And I can go and ask you, so how does, uh, how's group two? Like, how, how, what's their taste in music like? And you'd be like, eh, you know, like, that's all it takes. 
you will not have met half of the people in group one <laughs> before in your life, and yet suddenly you find this bond with them. And that's how fickle we are and how quickly we form associations. Uh, so imagine how much worse it is with lifelong Phillies fans or lifelong Republicans, like whatever affiliation you've had your whole life. Oh my God. So when you're creating a community, um, how do you avoid that kind of unhealthy attachment to each other or that competitive spirit against other groups? Well, I mean, I think the, the, as, with, as, as is the case with all biases, the first thing you can do is recognize that it exists. Um, and sometimes that's all you can do is call attention to it and remind people like we are on, like we, we, we may be working towards similar goals. Like just because we are we and they are they does not mean that we aren't working towards bigger goals. I also think the goal that you set as an organization or a group being larger than your group is a big part of the equation. So from, from the very start, Indie Hall was not about creating a co-working space. I had no ambitions to sign a lease and open a workspace. I still don't have any ambitions to have a lease or a workspace. This is a means to an end in a lot of cases. Um, but from the very beginning, it was about solving that problem that I had at the beginning, and I found other people finding the same problem, which is I don't know where my people are. I was actually finding people who the thing they had in common was they felt like they were an outgroup of one in a lot of ways. Yeah. So the, the bigger goal was what if we made it easier for people who felt like they didn't, ha didn't fit in in a, a, a professional sense, have a, have a place or a community where they, they could come together and work towards similar goals with the overarching goal of making Philadelphia as a whole a better place. And so if another organization goes about making Philadelphia a better place in a different way, that doesn't make them better or worse than us, so long as we can call attention back to we're working towards the same thing. Well, it's interesting because we haven't talked much more about, talked much before about the that aspect of the mission. Like there was definitely the, you know, working alone sucks part where it's like, okay, part of this is about us just being able to work with you know, next to, adjacent to, but with other people. But that making Philly a better place part, we haven't talked as much about, so I'm interested in that. Was that originally part of the mission? Like, how did that piece of it evolve? So, I remember, there's two, like, cornerstone moments I remember. One was at that creative camp that you and I met, actually, and there was a guy who had come down from New York, and when you have folks from New York and folks from Philadelphia, you've developed the bias that we're talking about. Yep. <laughs> and I remember him saying something about his impression of Philadelphia being really parochial. And he was basically describing the thing that I think is, is true of a, a previous generation of Philadelphia, which is a, a chip on your shoulder, an attitude of, I don't need your help. Yeah. And I was coming from a perspective of like, no, I think I do. <laughs> and I think if we take that perspective of, I think we'd actually all be able to create better things, do better things if we were able to ask each other for help and not just turn people away because we, they are part of the out group, um, that we can do more things together. We can do bigger, better things together. And I, re I remember writing a blog post about our sense of pride. People are proud Philadelphians, but people may be misplacing that pride. Being too proud of being too insular, mm -hmm. like the we got this, we're Philly. Um, and, and maybe we should find a way to drop that. I remember, yeah. I remember that, be, that sort of a call for we can, do, we can still be independent. We can do our own thing our own way, but we'll do it better if we do it together. Yeah. Was there from almost quite literally day one. The second 
like time or event that I think of was coming back from South by Southwest 2007, which was my first South by. And I didn't know that South by existed until about two nights before it began. Oh wow! Um, I was at a I was at a, a holiday party or something like that that uh, Happy Cog, a, a digital agency that um, that was here in Philadelphia, was hosting. And everyone's like, are you going to South By? Are you going to South By? And I was like, what's a South By? <laughs> and I found out that it was like the annual like pilgrimage of web interactive folks, which is what I wanted to be, all went to Austin to learn best practices and listen to you know, experts and, and maybe bump into some of the people who you know, you've read their book or yep. you watch their talk, or you model the way you work after the way they work. And I was like, I need to be at the South By thing. Um, crashed on the couch of another person who was at that original creative camp. It really does all come yeah. back, like center of the universe <laughs> is that like house in the middle of Chestnut Hill. Um, crashed on the couch and had an incredible five days in Austin with m making friends, meeting friends, connecting. It was like the internet, all my internet friends were in a place. Yeah. Or people that I'd followed on Twitter, which was, again, this is 2007, so Twitter was like 800 people. I was bigger than that. But like, there was not a lot of people, and they were all like kind of internet heavy hitters, um, you know, sort of famous tech startup founders and stuff like that. And I was like hanging out with them. Um, Gary Vaynerchuk was, was one yeah. of them as well. So like, there was, I just came away with this, sen this, this massive sense of belonging to a community that I, I so badly wanted to be a part of. And on the flip side, I had this sort of hole in my heart realizing that I knew there was other people from Philadelphia that were at this event and I had not seen, I couldn't find any of them. And I was like, where's the Philadelphia presence at what appears to be the most important event of our industry? Yeah. And when I came back from South By, I sat down with Jeff DeMassey, who's my, my co-founder, my, my business partner. And I said, Jeff, I have no idea what this Indy Hall thing is gonna turn into, but next year when we go back to South By, we need to show up as Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And that became like a very clear mission of like, I want people to see Philadelphia, not just that we exist, but that we contribute, that we can lead, um, that we, we, we have a presence that maybe other people want to be a part of. Um, and I think that sort of getting back to like the bigger picture of what community building has turned into for me and how the bias can be used as a tool for good mm -hmm. is when you get clear about who you are, why you are, um, the common goals that you work towards, the behaviors that you exhibit, you can make it so that people want to be a part of that. The same way that I felt on the outside, yeah. I created the thing that people were like, well, I don't want to be on the outside of that. I want, I want to be on the inside of that. Um, and you can wield that as a weapon as well. But I, I think to this point, we have largely used it for good. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into a sec about a, a popular fun question uh, around like, how is Indie Hall not a cult? But the first thing I want to... Ooh. No. Now you have to stay to the end of the podcast, friends. Yeah, yeah. Coming, <laughs> coming soon. After this break. No. Um, I love podcasts where it's like after this break and there's really nothing there. It's like we play a little bit of music and it's like, okay, we're back. It's like, but why did you leave? Um, but uh, so one of the things, though, you bring up that I think is interesting is there seems to be like a fundamentally different premise than my whole, okay, I'm going to divide the room up into like arbitrary groups from your end, which was like this notion of you know, we're better together, we can help each other. And one of the things when I was looking at um, social biases last season, most biases are universal. Like just wherever you go around the world, like if it happens to you, it happens over there. Some of the biases that you do get some variation is if you're in a collectivist culture versus not, which generally means mm. 
Eastern versus Western cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so and if you're in a like, collectivist culture, some of the biases that are sort of in-group, out-group, or have to do with um, basically thinking you're better than everyone else um, are lessened, right? Um, so you have cultures where, like, at the World Cup, uh, it was last year's in, like, the, when Japan came and watched after they were done, they cleaned up after themselves. And everyone was like, what are you doing? Why are you cleaning that up? Someone else would do that. And it's like, nope, that's, this is what we do. But there was a sort of a common assumption of, I'm not the most important person here. Um, I can, my, my, the best thing I can do is help somebody else, right? And that's a commonly shared thing. And the more commonly shared that is, the less you give some of these biases. And I'm interested, like, it almost sounds like the way that Indie Hall is structured resembles a collectivist culture a little more than, say, uh, a selfish or individualist culture. I, I think you're very right, and I'd carry that notion one step further. While that wasn't in a, like, I didn't assign that language to it and say, this is what we're going to do. That was sort of, that was the intent. Uh, now that I w- get to visit other places and see other people building co-working communities that are more and less like Indie Hall. The ones that look the most like Indie Hall tend to spring up in parts of the world that lean more collectivist. We've talked about this, yeah. right? Because one of your favorite uh, co-working conferences in Asia, right? Yeah, the co-working Asia conference is hands down my favorite, um, and not just because it's somewhere warm in February, um, although that helps. Um, but culturally, like when I explain some of the really important dynamics of Indie Hall, which all really track back to one core philosophy, which is trust is a core component to success in business. That is not an American capitalist notion. Um, like in America, business is, like if the deal terms are good, like the knife can still be in, you can still be twisting, and I'll still do the, I'll do the deal. But in parts of Asia, there are, so one of the things that I learned um, when I was uh, studying some of the things about co-working in Japan, um, and not specific to co-working, but there are consultancies who work with American companies who are building out their first Japanese office or doing business in Japan for the first time to help them navigate the social dance of earning trust. Hmm. Uh, because not only is it the upfront work that needs to be done, but also how it's managed through the relationship. And one of the things in that example is that if you bring a stranger into uh, a networked relationship amongst business collaborators at mm-hmm. the wrong time, and that person does not have trust established. Like, they don't get the, the trust is not fungible. They ah. don't get to borrow your trust just because they're part of your organization. They need to earn it too, and that blows up multi billion dollar deals. Wow. So, this consultancy essentially sells themselves as an insurance policy of like, this is how we make sure you don't screw up the yeah. deal. Um, and, I, and obviously, you can't pay Asia as, as a single culture, but Asian cultures tend to lean. A business business wise in more in the 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 Asia side of center is trust is priority right in the American side of center the the leaning is the deal is the priority yeah and when I work with American companies, whether they're co-working spaces or other organizations that are trying to learn how Indie Hall works or how to recreate some of the elements of, of community and collaboration and, 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 and sharing of knowledge and experience and expertise that generates real results, the stuff that I have to, I have to do a ton of rehabilitative work mm. um, or I need to convince them of something. Whereas in Asia, often I'm just showing them a new way of doing something they're already quite good at. Right. Well, it's interesting to me because... There's a way in which, you know, traditional capitalism sort of leverages a lot of just very 
self-centered biases that we have, right? Uh, and so there's, like I said, sort of an American style of that. And what I'm curious about then is, like, how does, because Indie Hall is not, a not, is not a non-profit organization. And I'm a capitalist. Yeah, like. Love making like, money. Yeah, and it's, and it's, it's funny, because, like, I think for a while, I'm like, and I know you. I thought it was a non-profit. I'm like, oh, no, it's a business, actually a very good business. I'm like, oh. So how, given, given the potential, like, bad habits, let's say, of uh, capitalists, capitalism and the sort of fundamental sort of collectivist yep. approach of a co-working space, like how do those two things marry well? So our model is one where our almost singular source of revenue is membership, which means I have pretty clearly aligned incentives to keep my community happy. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that I do whatever, whatever everybody wants or do anything anybody asks, but the best interest of the community is the best interest of the business. Mm -hmm. If the individual members are thriving and the group is thriving, the business is thriving. So I can almost not pay a lot of attention to the business once the business structure is bonded effectively to these, the, this alignment and I can focus entirely on helping individuals succeed mm -hmm. or helping groups succeed because I know that the payoff will follow. Right, uh, and it is, in, it is in your best interest and this is, I become very interested in seeing how business models incentivize different kinds of behavior. So to get back to the cult thing, so you and I and uh, Amy Hoy were hanging out yes. uh, one day, and I think she had a list of like signs you're in a it's cult. Like, it's like 101 signs you're in a yeah, cult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we were sort of like kind of checking off and be like, is Indy Hall a cult? Like, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that and like how you kind of navigate that. So I'm fascinated by this is exactly what you want to hear the leader of a community say. I'm fascinated by cults. <laughs> um, I am. Uh, cults and religion are super interesting. And cults and religion and then a wide range of other communities have a lot in common. Um, cults have a few distinct uh, um, elements to them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that go back to, to things like in-group, out-group bias, where sure. they're designed to make you believe that if you are in, everyone outside is bad. And we definitely do not do that. If anything, if we hear, like, sometimes, I'd say the most common thing that we hear will be member loyalty sometimes misplaced um, as uh, playful aggression towards another co-working space or co-working operation um, or even members of that space. And I'm like, we're all in, we're all Philadelphia. Like, we're all, again, we're all in this together. Like, they don't take anything away from what we do um, and, and we don't take anything away from what they do. Um, another thing that cults do is they make it difficult or impossible to leave. Mm. Um, I, I, either structurally um, or to make you believe that if you do very bad things will happen. Right. Um, looking at things like Scientology is a great example of like leaving Scientology is very difficult by design. And some of that is structural design. Some of that is emotional design. Some of that is, is like, is literally like monetary and, and yeah. like, or, or, um, or threat of, uh, of things you would actually want to be afraid of. Um, and you can leave Indy, Indy Hall anytime you want. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that one of the, I, when we started co-working, there weren't a lot of things to look to to learn from mm -hmm. uh, in terms of other co-working spaces. So when I had to borrow from other things, other things didn't include cults specifically, but I was interested in things like um, church planting. Really? As a and and my I grew up in a I while not particularly religious I grew up in a synagogue community in the Jewish community I thought about the communities that I was a part of that made people 
um, that people really bonded to over time. And you know, people feel safe, people feel trusted, people feel empowered. That's not a cult. People people join mm -hmm. and stay in cults because they're afraid of something, not because they're being empowered by something. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I think the line between, I think there are things that we we do that definitely appear culty. Um, I think language and jargon is probably one of the, the bigger ones. Um, people hear indie hall members talking a certain way, and and if it, depending on the environment, it can definitely sound a little weird. Um, or people just talking about how great the experience is, and I have to remind people, I'm like, these are not paid plants, and no, I haven't drugged them. <laughs> um, but again, it comes back to people speak highly of indie hall because, in a way, I read it as them speaking highly of themselves. People hmm. would not talk about our community the way they do if they had not been impacted by it in some positive way. Mm -hmm. um, again, whether that's professionally, personally, um, or, or really anything in between those things. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I should, full disclosure, I am in fact a Indie Hall member, although I don't show up that often. And I've most of our members, most of our members, so we have around 400 members on the on the roster right now in terms of actual paying members. Much wider network of alumni and things like that. But in terms of people who pay um, even a small amount of money uh, every month or in an annual prepayment, it's about 400 people. 60-ish um, percent of them are on one of our memberships that include one day or less every month. People aren't joining because they need a place to work. They're joining because they want, they want access to other people. They want mm -hmm. to feel a pulse, a sense of, uh, of, of safety, of if I want to know what's going on, that there's something that I can rely on, mm -hmm. um, is a thing I've heard where people, you know, people may even be members, maybe a full-time desk for a while, and then job changes or life changes, they move away, and they say, I'm so happy I keep my membership. I basically am never here, and I don't really chime in online, but knowing that it's there mm -hmm. is, gives me a sense of, uh, um, of, of safety and belonging that I haven't been able to find somewhere else. Yeah, and I'll say I'll speak personally, and there may be other folks like this. Like I contribute in part because I want Indie Hall to exist, and I want to sort of like have a monetary token of my expression of my desire that it continue to exist. And I think that speaks back to that larger, like it's not just us; it's this higher thing that right. we're like striving for. And back to your question about how about business model. Like for me, the business. Like, I'm not in this to optimize dollar per square foot. Um, I think that's a pretty lousy business model to get into, and people who do, I tend to try and talk them out of it. Um, what I'm optimizing for is, when, is that we have the resources to say yes. Mm. When a member wants to do something that I can say, we, yeah, we can do that, whether it's because we have the money, whether it's because we have the equipment, the technology, the access, the relationships. Like, my, I've made my job, my role at Indie Hall is to make it so that when somebody wants to do something and that something is, like, measurably good for the world, mm -hmm. even if that world is very small, yeah. um, that we're able to, even if all we do is say yes, and then they do all the work, that we are able to be, be an enabler that somebody can say, oh, I, I now... I now not only have the permission, but now I have the ability, the access, yeah. um, the tools, um, so that if something goes wrong, I've got help. If something goes right, I've got help. Yeah. Um, and people will celebrate and support me along the way. Um, all, all I have to do is make myself known. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the people who do use the physical space, um, one of the things you see a lot of in uh, cognitive bias is how space can influence 
um, behavior. And so I was talking to Erica D. France in a previous episode, and we were talking about how even just if you go to a meeting and there's a briefcase in the room, people will act more competitive than if there's like a backpack in the room. Like just little things like really? that. So, oh yeah, this, it's a thing. Um, um, listen to the show, Alex. No. Um, <laughs> Dave, I listen to the show. Sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, so I know that you've, when we've had conversations about this, you've you've thought and people here have thought very consciously about all of the spaces. I think mm -hmm. this is Andy Hall's third space. Sorry, this is the third location and definitely yeah. has the most intentional design in it. Yeah, so tell, tell me a little bit about how you think about the design of the physical space when you're thinking about how people are going to behave in it. So one of the, um, one of the tools that we've, we've built ourselves is making it easy for people to choose where, where they can be based on what they need. And that sounds kind of obvious. Um, but the reality is, is if, if you think about work for the history of work, work has typically been one place, um, whether it was in the fields or in a, a, a factory or now an office building. Um, you, you are at work when you are at your desk or in an office. And as work has changed and we do more things with our, our minds and, uh, and, and with our other skills, there's not, if there's not a place I have to be, the question becomes, how do I choose where to be? Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, people are really bad at <laughs> making choices, um, which is why biases exist. Oh, yeah. Um, so if somebody comes to Indie Hall, a part of the reason is, is because they want to be around other people. They want opportunities to connect with other people. And it's not that I want to be talking to people all day long. I'm here to get work done. But being able to build connections and relationships in those uh, interstitials throughout your day is kind of what we're designed for. So if you come to Indie Hall with the goal of meeting people and it is uh, very easy for you to sit by yourself or facing a wall or a window where you don't get to see the other people that you're sharing a room with, um, you won't get the thing that you want. Um, another example of that is when people uh, form small teams. Mm -hmm. The difference between individuals and small teams, uh, one of my favorite examples uh, was we had a, a, a small media company, three, uh, three women, we met, they met at one of our barbecues, they joined Indie Hall, they were coming a couple times a month, and about six weeks in, they, they came to one of my teammates and they were like, can we, can we talk to you? We, we love Indie Hall, but we feel like something's not clicking the way it did at the barbecue and, and we're not sure if we're doing something wrong or was there, did we miss an expectation? And he pointed out, you know, the three of you, you come in together, you sit together, you've got in-jokes together, you go to lunch together, you come back from lunch together, you sit together, you leave together. There's not a lot of room for other people in the room who you want to meet to interact with you as individuals because it looks like you've already got other people to talk to. So... Between those two examples of people, their default, the easy thing, to sit with the people you already know and to sit in the quiet corner by yourself, those are two things that are easier to choose but are also make it harder for you to get the experience that you came here for and that we know people get the most value from. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you are ever visiting Indie Hall, you may notice sort of a checkerboard pattern of the clusters of desks in the space, um, two different colors, sort of a light and a, and a dark colored desk, and the, they're mixed, and that's on purpose. In a lot of shared workspaces, you've got like the hot desk areas over here, and then the dedicated desks are over here, mm -hmm. often for security. And we can come back to talking more about security oh, sure. if you like. Um, and we say, nope, trust is paramount, so we've got that security thing taken care of, and it's more important for people to be mixed in together. So our dedicated desks and our flex desks are all mixed. And we make, we've done it in such a way that if you're a full-time member, 
you aren't sitting next to the exact same people every day. And if you're here on a drop-in day or one of your membership days, the odds of you sitting by yourself go down. Um, and the, even the odds of you sitting in a different flex desk than last time go up because maybe somebody got here before you did and sat in your, your usual spot. And so it's sort of designed to make it so that pe people are going to choose. They, um, if, we, if they're going to choose the path of least resistance and we give them a path of least resistance that makes it hard for them to get, get the thing they came for, right. then we have to redesign the path of least resistance and introduce some resistance yeah. and make it kind of weird and complicated. And none of this is a secret, by the way. We tell people some, this as part of the tour. Like what other co-working space, spaces would consider part of the sales process of showing you how how easy they're going to make your life, we actually kind of go the opposite direction. We're like, we do some weird tricky shit. Are you in for that? <laughs> and that becomes part of the buying because the people are like, that's no, no. I'm like, all right, well, then you're not going to get what, what we are good at. You're yeah. probably going to be unhappy and you should probably go be in other co-working spaces problem. Whereas the value that we know we, we are focused on and, and, and the value that, I, if I, it's a tough thing to measure, but like, for me, the value of an indie hall membership is the aggregate connections and relationships of the community. Mm -hmm. And anytime there's a, a missed opportunity or a, a blocked um, uh, segment of the network, the aggregate value goes down. Yeah. Right. So somebody sitting by themselves is not a bad thing, but a person who's disconnected is a decrease in value for every other member who's paying to be a part of that network. Yeah. Um, so there is a... That's how I sort of start bringing it into almost like the, the, the fuzzy woo-woo part of, of community. I can actually take it back to uh, more of an architectural uh, numbers structure and say, like, if you are here, there's lots of reasons to be here. But the reason that there's lots of reasons to come, but there's only a few reasons that people consistently stay. Right. And at the top of that list is deep bonds of trust, feeling supported, yeah. being supported, being able to offer support. Um, uh, and and grow as an individual in whatever ways it is that you're looking to grow. Yeah, and the on the subject of trust, so the um, you're gonna talk about security a little bit. I remember a really impactful story I heard from the early days of um, Indie Hall, where there was a theft and there was discussion. What do we do? Do we install cameras? And you know, one of my personal biases that I know I'm super guilty of is one called zero risk bias, where it's like. I want a guarantee, right, that nothing bad is ever going to happen. So I want cameras, I want like security guards and like little turrets with like, you know, whatever, right? Lasers. Exactly. Lasers, <laughs> more lasers. I don't care if they do anything, just have lasers. Lasers on sharks. Yeah, lasers on sharks, whatever. <laughs> protecting just my desk at the yeah. co working space, right? So you came up with a much less, let's say, um, totalitarian approach <laughs> to security. And so how do you sort of mitigate that? Zero risk bias. I'm going to change my Twitter bio after this to less totalitarian <laughs> than you think. Um, <laughs> that is awesome. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, yeah, and this is actually, and it was, the decision was also rooted in, in group, a version of in group, out group, out group bias as well. So, um, early days of Indie Hall, you could join as a full time member. Full time members were the only ones who could get keys. Um, we didn't really care how often they were there because they, were, they had unlimited time anyway. Um, uh, you, so you could join for a few hundred bucks a month, and on day one, you got a key, a physical key to the front door, to a building full of a bunch of people's typically pretty valuable elect electronics. And in hindsight, that's a little crazy. <laughs> but it also worked for a while. So I'm the opposite of you in terms of zero risk. I'm like, mm -hmm. eh, can't, you know, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> um, 
So, uh, so it was it was a good almost three years before something happened, um, which in the grand scheme of things and the thousands of people that had been through our doors at that point for events and things like the fact that nothing went wrong is is, is luck, pure luck, um, which means something bad will eventually happen, and it mm-hmm. did. Um, and what was especially challenging about the theft that happened, it was a petty, a bunch of small electronics from around the space went missing. Um, it was very clear who it ended up being. It was a relatively recent new full-time member. Um, this was like a caught red-handed kind of situation. Um, and so addressing it was clear in terms of, we're like, you can return the things and we won't press charges, mm-hmm. um, which is exactly what happened and never come back. But the real damage done wasn't the stuff, it was the trust of every member that had up until that point believed that my stuff is safe. And now it's the opposite of like every new member is the potential next thief. And when our goal is to build a network of trust, that is a uh, disadvantage to be working from. Um, So the way, the next move you make is super important. And we talked a lot about this, Mm -hmm. Uh, my my partner and I, and and, um, some some of the founding members of the community as well, and like, the instinct is I want to put up cameras and lasers and a, a shark mode or whatever it is. Um, but I also know that that sends a signal of no one is trusted or yeah. to be trusted, and that undermines everything we're about. Mm-hmm. So how do we solve this problem in a way that reminds and reinforces the important of trust, importance of trust and that trust doesn't come from one place? It is, it's also a network effect. And so what we came up with was you now had to wait 30 days to get a key which just is sane, I believe. Um, and then at that 30-day point, you had to get signatures from three other key-holding members that say they've gotten to know you and they trust you to be a fellow key-holder. And receiving a key becomes a cultural initiation, in mm-hmm. a way, uh, and it sends a very strong message that it's not that the staff trusts you with a key, it's that your peers yeah. trust you with a key. And the message that we send to this entire thing is, is like the way this place stays safe is when we all look out for each other. Yeah. So we so we call it the neighborhood watch model for co-working space security. Um, a, a number of not many, but uh, a number of co-working spaces have adopted it, and they've all had extremely positive results because it's not just that the space is then safe; mm-hmm. it's you get all these secondary benefits of a sense of ownership and belonging that come from getting a key. Yeah, which it seems very transactional. Um, and one story that comes to mind was um, this is after all that event and keyholder process was now the standard operating procedure for us. Um, and we had a member who was not particularly like super involved in the community. Super nice guy. Um, he was a full time member, but being full time here doesn't necessarily mean that you're the most involved community member. It just means you have a desk that you're at every day. Um, and I happened to be flying to or from a conference. There was a terrible storm coming through Philadelphia, so it must have been summertime. Um, and the building next door leaked really badly against our wall, and so water was flooding in, mm. and a bunch of members' equipment would have been damaged by the water, and so George carefully moved all the things out of harm's way. He did a, you know, was Googling around, find our staff members, cell phone numbers, late at night, too. Mm-hmm. Um, find staff number, he finds a member who lives in the neighborhood, calls them, and this all happens while I'm on an airplane. <laughs> I land and there's a whole bunch of flurry of texts and emails and Twitter direct messages and all this stuff and it's all been handled and everything's fine. And so I'm like, thank you, like, you guys are great. And so I, I came in the next day and I was like, George, you're, you're a rock star, I owe you big time. And he goes, it's no big deal, man, I'm a key holder. And I was like, that is why we do this. <laughs> um, and for that to be, 
for that to be the message that we send and to know and we and we don't tell everybody they're like this this is the result of a, a bad thing happening but it's one of the kinds of examples and stories we can point to of like the way we handle things um even when bad things happen we do our best to handle it in a way that addresses the individuals and the network mm -hmm. rather than the problem yeah and it's really interesting too like even that phrase i'm a key holder right because one of the Almost every cognitive bias that I've looked at comes back to one of two things, usually at the same time. A sense of certainty, like I'll do whatever it takes to feel certain, even if it is totally illogical, um, and a sense of identity. Like yeah. what can I do to preserve my identity? And so that path to becoming a key holder, right, now it's not just, oh, I'm uh, a dues-paying member. It's like I am, I am Indy Hall, right? Like not only would... You're less incentivized to steal or do anything to hurt the community because it's like, at that point, you're not just... Doing that would be like letting down the community. And people hate letting people down. Like, even criminals hate letting people down. Like, it's, it's like, I think... And I think the, when the people you'd be letting down are Indy Hall, okay, I'm not going to hurt Indy Hall. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the things I want to talk about, and then we'll um, actually invite some audience questions. So if you have questions, start thinking about them. Make them cool. No, just have questions. Um, uh, is um, we've also had lots of conversations about entrepreneurialism. Um, yeah. And uh, one of the uh, biases um, that I've uh, encountered is called survivorship bias. And it's very much this notion where you kind of look at the things that worked, right, and sort of like assume everything's like that and don't look at the 50 other things that tried the exact same stuff and failed. You kind of discount that. And you see this very much in investment. You see this very, very, very much in the world of entrepreneurialism. And there's this phrase you came up with called entreporn, which I think beautifully captures basically glorifying the 10x, right? Glorifying when someone makes a big sale and glorifying how much money they made. Not really caring too much what's the product, who cares? But look how much money they made, right? And so, and not necessarily noticing that for that person, there are about, even from that investor, right, and that person, there are 10 other things he invested in that month that went nowhere and have no money now, but he doesn't care because he only needs one of them to actually hit. Uh, so in any case, I kind of want to like, give you a chance to talk a little bit about like, the survivorship bias and kind of how you try to think about entrepreneurialism in a more healthy way, maybe? Yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we'll start with, with entreporn. It's a term coined by my, my other business, business partner, Amy Hoy, who you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I actually just re recently re-watching an interview that we did with um, Jonathan Fields, who had a really amazing um, a video show and podcast a while ago. And, he brought up entreporn like right out of the gate and mm -hmm. Amy's description of it, I had forgotten, but it was so great. She goes, if you think about what porn is outside of the context of sex, it is a tool to manipulate your emotions mm. and all of these things, survivorship bias is using the limited outcomes that show what you want and ignoring the others to manipulate your own emotions yeah. to believe something that you want to believe, even if you know intellectually it's not true um and so i think that thinking about it uh, as a tool if survivorship bias and all by many biases are a tool for for managing and manipulating emotions back to your original question is like what is a healthier way um i think is when it comes to business separating your emotions from the decisions that you make mm. um and looking at what you actual like where you actually are like being honest about where you are and where you want to go is part of the equation but i think all these entrep 
pornographical examples show the hundredth step and not the 99 that came before it. And mm. what we focus on and what I tend to focus on is like, cool, you want to go that direction? We're focused on step one, maybe step two. Yeah. Um, and what that allows us to do is focus on the reality of today and what can you change about the situation today with the assets and resources that you already have to move you incrementally one step closer to wherever it is that you're trying to go. That's true of starting a business. It's true of making changes in your career. It's mm -hmm. true of starting creative projects. Or, or, you know, we dream up these big ideas. I think entrepreneurship is so deeply tied to big ideas, and that's a cultural phenomenon. Um, that also, I guess, probably ties maybe other biases in addition to survivorship. But like, I wonder what, if not survivorship bias, what other biases contribute to our sort of cultural misunderstanding of entrepreneurship means building the next Facebook. Like mm -hmm. the only companies that are successful are huge, yeah, um, or venture funded versus like, you know, starting a a, a business that serves your neighborhood or mm -hmm. starting a business that serves your community. Um, that can be profitable, that can give you the life that you want to live, and maybe someday could grow into something much bigger, but the idea that it needs to be bigger, I think is the result of the media putting a certain kind of success forward so often, yeah. um, and then our bias towards that's the way it must be done, that's what success must look like, means we optimize all of our decisions, all of our expectations, um, and also, how we feel about our own failures, missteps, and inaction, right? So I think a lot of times the thing that causes people to fail isn't that they did the wrong thing, it's that they did nothing at all, mm -hmm. right? So like, and back to those, like, what's step one or two, a big part of what Amy and I work on and a big part of, like, why I think Indie Hall has helped so many people is it just gets people to take the first step, Take like that, which first step it is almost doesn't matter. Right. So long as you're getting in motion in the general direction you want to go, it's more about building momentum over time than about singular opportunity to launch mm -hmm. your your idea, your project, your venture to the world to be received one way or the other the first time. Yeah, and I think you know going back to your question about like what are the biases kind of driving that vision of what success is, and that's just good old fashioned pattern recognition, right? If like when you think startup or when you think tech company, we feel like Facebook, like all these big giant things. We're even still even the phrase unicorn now, which I hate, right? So you're seeing Uber make its launch, and all these things basically give you this narrow definition of success, and this is what, and it's a self-repeating like this is what we're going to glorify so this is what you're going to think success is so this is what we're going to glorify and it would be really cool right um and i challenge anyone here or anyone listening to this to sort of make this a thing is to start to glorify the smaller steps right yeah. this is me getting applying for my first business loan or this is me just sitting down and trying to come up with an idea like whatever that first step is start to glorify those things and it's almost to your point it's almost doesn't matter what the step is just that it's a first step yeah. If we start glorifying first steps, I guarantee you, it's like our little lizard brains, we'll start thinking, oh, you made a first step. That's a huge win. That's awesome. I want to do a first step, right? That's just how we are. There's something very infectious. And again, tying it back to Indy Hall, one of the, the values of being a part of this community is this, that sense of shared momentum. So yeah. like, jump, like, it's very hard to walk into a room full of people who are doing things, even if you don't know what those things are or really who those people are. But you can get a sense that there's momentum. Like, it, it's it feels weird to talk about it as an energy, but I think it absolutely is. The difference between you can walk into a place of business and you're like, no one wants to be here. <laughs> <laughs> 
And this is a rare room in the world where everyone is here yeah. because they chose to be here. And that energy is different. They're yeah. here because they chose to be here in general and on that day, in that moment. And it's because they're working on something they think is important. And there's something about that energy that if you walk in feeling kind of bummed out that day or kind of unmotivated or kind of unsure about yourself or whatever you're working on, you're not going to be able to hold on to that feeling for very long if you allow yourself to make contact with those other people. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in the room, I think you get, a, you, get, you get a bit of a contact high. If you make contact, you sit down and you have a conversation with, with some, a fr an old friend you haven't seen in a while, or you sit down at lunch and you has, jump into a conversation that's got nothing to do with anything you're working on, and you realize, oh, right, there's other people here that are working on stuff that's important to them. They're smart, they're creative, they're weird, too. Yeah. Like, I'm cool. And you can walk away from that lunch meeting with a bit of confidence and the yeah. energy to jump back into whatever you're doing, um, and and it's it's a it's a it's a tough thing to talk about because it sounds kind of crazy until you've experienced it, and then you're like, why don't why doesn't everybody have yeah. access to this? Well, it's kind of what South by would do in, in microcosm. Like that was the thing. Like the energy you would get coming out of that and going back into the world. It's like or bar camp. Like the energy you get coming out of bar camp. And like I guarantee you that Monday morning at work was way better than most of the Monday mornings at work for the rest of the year because you had that extra infection. Yep. Um, so I want to uh, make sure we have some time. Does anyone have any questions? In the back there. Uh, Marty, you want to come up? Uh, yeah, yeah sure. come and grab a microphone. This is being recorded for the internet. You know that, right? Yeah, I'm aware. Cool. Uh, my voice has been on the internet numerous times today. <laughs> so, uh, also, I'm going to be the asshole that's like, I don't have a question, more of a comment. Because I, I wanted you to know, I nearly jumped out of my chair earlier. Mm -hmm. Because less than eight hours ago, an Indie Hall member like talked about our delightful little signs around here that uh, you know, talk about very positive things. At the end of every note, there's a little thing that says, you're great, or you're fantastic, and and somebody I, I retweeted it, and an account I've never interacted with replies to me saying, "That place seems a little cultish, in my opinion." <laughs> and I realized a couple of things. Number one, I got instantly defensive, and number two, and Dave can probably like tell me where the bias, like the mental bias, comes in here. I realized that. As soon as somebody calls something that you're involved in a cult, there is nothing you can do or say to make it sound less like a cult. <laughs> yeah. Because there's no way that I could have been like, no, it's really cool. Come check it out and hang out with us without sounding like I'm inviting you to join my cult. Right. So as soon as you said that, it's I, working. I nearly <laughs> jumped out of my chair. Dave, can you explain to me why that, number one, why I got so defensive sure. about this to a complete stranger who lives in Los Angeles that I will never interact with? And number two, why uh, that, like, why, why I can't say this isn't a cult without making it yeah. sound like more of a cult? Yeah. And um, so the first part. So they did an experiment where they put people in an fMRI machine, which to greatly oversimplify basically shows where the blood is flowing in your brain. It's like, this is the part of your brain that lights up when this happens, right? So they did it and they basically attacked their political beliefs, right? They said something bad about um, a political candidate or person that they knew the person liked. And the part of the brain that lit up when um, they did that was the part having to do with identity. Right. So if you are a Colts fan, if you are a Trump supporter, if you are a Hillary supporter, if you're a Bernie bro, um, that is not just a preference. That is who you are. Right. 
If I attack Trump to a Trump supporter, I'm not attacking Trump. I'm attacking them, all right? That is a personal attack. And when you are attacked personally, yeah, your blood goes up. Your adrenaline starts pumping, right? Like you are actually under attack. I might as well just come at you with a knife. It's the same physiological reaction. Uh, so if you are, basically all that tells you is that you align part of your identity now to Indy Hall in some way. So yeah, it's working. That Keep makes it, it sound so much more cultish. <laughs> I know. Like, so I, I have two thoughts. One is we should send this episode to that guy and see what he says. Oh, I'm going to. <laughs> two, um, what, one of, because I, I have been asked the question, usually not from a, from a, a place of attack, but of a, of a place of genuine curiosity. Um, and one of the ways I've responded is I ask people, well, tell me about the communities you're a part of. Because odds are, was one of two things. Either they've, they're uh, uh, cold in their heart and they haven't been a part of a community where they felt trusted and supported and things like that. But most people can think of one. They may not be a part of it anymore, but like, is there a community where you ever felt like you were, you really felt a strong sense of belonging. Most people say yes. I ask them to describe it, and by the end of them describing it, they're like, okay, I get it now, without me having to say anything about Indie Hall. Um, so I think that affirms exactly what you're saying, is getting people to articulate their identity in the way that you were, or the sign was, or whatever it was, um, has been moderately effective in, in, in disarming people, um, but also, uh, I don't really care that much. <laughs> yeah, and uh, his answer is way better than mine, which was just going to be just give up and tell him it's a cult. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're right, totally is. By the way, I didn't do like the good radio host thing of tell me your name. Oh, um, hi, I'm Marty Schneider. I am an indie hall member, and I'm also a podcast producer, and I'm the host of one of the shows on that list, Breaking Mayberry, which is about retro television and how it broke all of your grandparents' brains. <laughs> so please follow us on Breaking Mayberry on all of your like podcasters of your choice and all the social medias. All right, thank you. Thanks, Marty. Um, anybody else? Any questions? All right. Hi. Tell us. Tell us your name. Oh, hi. I'm Sabina. Hey. Um, I'm not an indie hall member, but did come for one open hall first Friday, so that was very fun. Yeah. I've been here at countless events since then. Uh, and my question is about the events, um, because it seems like there's a certain type of event that mm. either you are willing and excited to bring into the space and or those organizers are compelled by something about Indie uh -huh. Hall. So can you tell me sort of about like, you obviously can't host everything, yep. so what do you choose to host, and like, how does that how does that whole events thing work? I think the energy thing is is maybe part of it, which is why I thought of it when you were talking about that. Well, and before I answer, I'm curious if you'd be willing to share any elements of that perception, like, or, or qualities of the events, like what 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 stands out to you about the events that it appears we're cho choosing intentionally. Well, I'll tell you that we are, and then I'll say what what it is. <laughs> but I'm curious. I'm always curious what people who I haven't influenced in any way, uh, uh, see and believe and, and understand on their own terms. Careful that you haven't influenced me in any way, because, yeah. you know, who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, so a couple come to mind, right? Like, Finish Up Weekend comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and I think that is an energy thing. When you were talking about, like, somebody comes into the space and they don't feel motivated, and presumably they leave Finish Up Weekend feeling much more motivated than when, when they walked in. Um, and then, you know, was here earlier this week at the uh, Collective Strength uh, event spinoff of the Strong Feelings podcast that's also in, in Philly. To me, that's also sort of a 
um, empowerment and there's a little bit of an underrepresented sort of aspect there that I think is uh, concurrent across a couple other events that are hosted. Um, so yeah, it, it, there is sort of a very community feel, like that's sort of a cop-out yep. answer because what is that? The, what is that, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, and I've been at other events with a community field that aren't hosted here, so anyway, totally. But that's that's sort of the perception. Yeah, no, I think you're right on the money. So a couple of elements. Uh, the first one I'll start with is that, in the same way that I didn't set out to start a co-working space, it's a, it's a means to an end. Mm -hmm. Events are as well. Um, event hosting is not a a, a significant. It's like a rounding error in terms of our financial model. Um, again, we're not motivated to have you know, butts in seats every night of the week in this room. If it made us money, we would be, but we're not, so we can choose more intentionally about events that create a different experience. Um, most of the events that we've hosted throughout our history have been events that members created or ran or co-hosted. Um, that answers a bunch of questions in one. Um, there's a self-selection to the people that are here. They're saying, hey, it'd be really cool if this happened. Also, the sense of ownership. It's not, we're an event using Indie Hall space. It is, it's like inviting people over to your own house. And when we communicate with event organizers, that's kind of the message we send. It's like, we don't rent space. You cannot rent space from Indie Hall. You can, we can do things together um, and the things that work best are when our community, members of our community, feel a sense of ownership. Maybe not the entire, like, at this point, we're too big for everyone. When I say the community, I'm never referring to everyone. That's just like, that's impossible. But some set, subset of our community will feel a sense of ownership of this, want to contribute, want to participate at the bare minimum, like they'll want to actually come to the event. Um, they maybe want to co-host. Um, uh, and so, again, that's that sort of supplanted by the fact that most of the events are actually somebody's a member first, and they're like, I wanna do this, can I do this at Indie Hall? The answer is yes, and here's how. Um, for events that don't, don't fall in that category are one of two things. They're collaborations with groups that we feel a strong sense of alignment with in some way, um, where there's a, there's a doing element to us, like Code for Philly is one of the examples that comes to mind for me. Um, that ties back to that making Philadelphia better thing I was talking about before. Um, like Code for Philly and Indie Hall have a, have a a history of like running very close parallel tracks, occasionally overlapping and then parting ways again. Um, and so the fact that for the last year or so we've had a more bonded relationship. Even within that, when I sat down with the, the leaders of that group, we talked about which of their events made more sense at Indy Hall. Um, most, like this arrangement that we're in today where you know there's somebody at the front of the room talking at an audience is actually pretty rare. We lean more towards things that are kind of workshop or conversation or round table oriented um, because that's, that's where the bonds and relationships are built. Whereas many networking events and meetups are you know, 15 minutes of networking before and after a couple of people in front of the room talking at you for an hour. So it's not that those are bad, but in terms of a community building mechanism, I think that they are measurably lesser than other options. Um, the last one, is also I can partner partner DNA is like what's something that I don't think anyone else in the in the world would say yes to, like is this weird, kind of a lark, maybe risky but not in a way that it would hurt anybody. Like, can I be the one who says yes to this? And a little bit of that is is my own ego without a doubt. Um, but I love being able to be the launching point for something that somebody else believes in, and they're they're not sure if anybody else would say yes. And so if I'm looking at it and going, I don't, 
I also don't know if anybody else would say yes. I will make it a priority to find a way to say yes. Um, and I think things like finish up weekend fall into, into that category in particular. Cool. So for those who don't know, can you tell people what Finish Up Weekend is? Yeah, so Finish Up Weekend came from a, a member uh, of ours, Nicole Forrester. We were out for drinks after uh, probably another event. Um, and she's like, I've always wanted to do an event that kind of captures... It's like you go to a conference and you got all these ideas and energy and you want to go do a thing and then you never do the thing because you come back from the conference and you have the real world. Um, what if you could create a thing that was just the after effect of a conference? And I was like, that's an awesome idea. Um, and it had elements of a thing that I had wanted to do as well, but she had thought through more components of it. Another component of it is not this that you carve out time to work on a thing that you haven't been giving time. This is there's mentors available with different disciplines and skills. So if you get stuck on something or you want advice on something, there are experts in the room that are there specifically to help you. You're not taking them away from their project. They came time out of their weekend to, to coach you along, give you support, give you feedback, show you how, whatever it might be. Um, and I have... Um, this goes back to um, your group one, group two. I don't like Startup Weekend. Um, I've been pretty vocal about that. I, I, I value what Startup Weekend creates. I, the part of the reason I don't like it is I think it puts the emphasis, um, I think it, it, it misaligns that's, and this is gonna be contrary to something I said before, it misaligns that starting is the important thing. It is the important thing but then you have to complete it. And the number of things that are created at Startup Weekend that are actually completed, um, that are actual real businesses are, are, are pretty, rare. Um, and so I've always wanted to do sort of like a cheeky, um, like a cheeky riff on Startup Weekend to like kind of point out how silly I think it is. Um, and so I was like, what if we call your thing Finish Up Weekend? And she's like, that sounds great. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I was like, how, you know, how many people do we need to make this work? Um, I was like, if we can get 15 or 20 people here for a weekend, that's absolutely worth being here. Um, and then at the end of the weekend, we had everybody do like a like a five minute show and tell presentation of what they finished up that weekend. And it was everything from like, one woman had been, she had a, she made a photo book from a collection of photos that she had taken like 20 years prior and had never turned into the book that she was planning on doing with it. Um, that trip that she had gone on for these photos had been funded by a relative, I think an aunt who was um, not doing so well. And so she actually used this weekend to finish a project she'd put off for 20 years so she could finish the book and send a copy to her aunt. And I was like, oh, God, my heart. <laughs> um, and then sometimes like, it's like I finished the bio page on my website that I've been putting off for 18 months. Or um, I spent an afternoon learning you know, a new design tool so I could create a, a mock-up that I need for a, a pro whatever it is. Like, it's it's a, a, a skill, talent, and project type agnostic. The, the only thing we kind of constraint we put on it is it is the weekend. And so it needs to be finished in a weekend. So if you apply and you're like, I want to build a whole company. I'm like, well, you won't be able to build a whole company in a weekend. So why don't you pick one thing that you can say, I'm going to finish this this weekend so you, we can help you actually finish it. Sweet. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, does anyone else have a question? Hmm? Oh, hey, please, coming up. I did promise we were going to get you on a microphone. I didn't know it was going to be this soon. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, I didn't have to tap out with anyone. Oh, yeah. You know, I feel left <laughs> that was out. the last podcast. I feel left out. No, yeah, that wasn't this, that's <laughs> so, not this podcast. Um, I'm Jed Hensel. I'm an Indie Hall member, um, and I am not from the tech world. So my question kind of relates to that, because I think that is a little bit unique to Indie Hall. 
Um, is there anything that you've used consciously or maybe subconsciously that you've later realized, mm. be it that working with biases, maybe manipulating or cultivating them to try and create a environment that is not so myopic, so singular, mm. you know, and as a non-tech person, there are a few times that I've been kind of like out of the joke, but what's unique to Indie Hall is somebody will notice and be like, hey, come over here, I'll explain it. Right. You know, or I do this geeky thing, I'm a tour guide, and people that are a tech will be like, wow. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so it, we come from different sides of things. And yep. it, can you explain conscious, unconscious, whatever that yeah. you do to create that environment? Because I've noticed that is a kind of a uniquely indie hall thing. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Uh, awesome question. Um, and I, you actually kind of touched on a big part of it in, in your explanation of the experience, which is we put a lot more emphasis on having people introduce themselves as more things of themselves than the thing they do for money. Um, and that's, that is very much on purpose. Um, I recognize that as like a bad habit in like tech industry networking early on where I was like, wow, I mean, I love this stuff too, but I, I'm interested in other things. Um, and so introducing yourself as, as what you do instead of who you are was a default that I kind of wanted to subvert. And so when folks join Indie Hall, when we're in conversations, even when somebody's coming for a tour, the tour, we've, we basically never ask somebody what they do. We ask them things that give us ideas and elements of, of their identity, why they chose to be at Indie Hall on that very specific day. Um, and we try to bring to the surface elements of personal passion and story and interest that you may bond over so you can connect with people that don't do what you do because we see that as some of the greatest um, opportunities for business, but also just like, relationships come out of that all the time. So um, a great concrete example of this in action on a pretty regular basis, um, around the corner from here, there's a comic book rack spinner um, that is a sort of physical manifestation uh, of an interest that a bunch of members share. Um, there's another spot where there's a bunch of books. Those books aren't just cool looking books. Those books are either written by, published by, illustrated by, or contributed by in some way the member. Um, and there's a bunch of other like physical artifacts in this space and the onboarding process that are designed to show you there are people here who are interested in things that you might be interested in. And those are opportunities for you to connect on things that have nothing to do with with tech, if that's your industry, or, or your tour guide sort of thing. So like the fact that somebody might know you for a while and then they find out you're a tour guide. Like the tour guide thing comes second. And now they're interested in you and now they're even more interested in you. Like, like, what is that like, right? And they get to be guinea pigs when I test out new tours. Totally, totally. So um, I think th the best answer I can give to that question of like what we really do intentionally is we're trying to find out, like there's this, there's this process that we've kind of borrowed and adapted from, um, uh, from a cultural event in Jewish communities in, in upstate New York called Tumbling. Um, Tumbling was sort of like your, your, your party director um, in these sort of camps that would have big parties. And the Tumbler's job looked a lot like, uh, it was sort of like the cruise director for the party. They're there making noise, getting people out on the dance floor. Um, 
And uh, but the thing that's subtle about what a tumbler does that's different from a cruise director, a cruise directors makes themselves the center of attention. The tumbler finds ways to make the individual the center of attention. They're going to work in a subtler way to discover a little thing about you that nobody else in the room knows maybe except you, but you also had conversations with a bunch of other people in the party and say so like, "Oh, wait, I was just talking to um like walk I'm going to go grab a drink. Walk with me, talk with me and I'm I'm intentionally walking towards a group of people that I know I can connect those people with, and I don't even need to tell them what they have in common, but I know they have something in common, and the thing that we just talked about, um, what's the bias where the most re recency bias? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the thing we just talked about is going to be the thing that's top of mind for both of them, so there's a good chance it comes up. I am a magician. Um, so, so yeah, I think those are, those are the kinds of intentional choices and actions we can take, um, is helping find find things that make people them that might not be the first thing they do to introduce themselves um, and use those as the bonding opportunities to help people connect and and uh, get curious about each other. Now to counter, just because I want to be devil's advocate, mm -hmm. have you ever had incidences where maybe those have gone awry or have not worked and how have you kickstarted those or just kind of, you know, I can't, I can't think of a time it's gone like super wrong. The more common thing is nothing happens at all. Um, and so like there's a, there's a, uh, there's an element of like, you gotta take a bunch of shots. They're not all going to be slam dunks. Um, some, like sometimes people pick up what you're putting down other times not. Um, and sometimes like just the serendipity gods aren't smiling on you in that, in that moment. Don't give up. I'd say the, the hardest thing is like, sometimes people are more guarded. And so like the thing the, they would never tell you and you would never know to ask. Um, about the thing that will light them up. I can think of an example where it was like a really offhanded conversation about like moral philosophy came up in a chat room one day and the person who was most excited about it is a person who I've been trying to figure out like what their thing was for like four years. And I was like, never would have guessed that in a million years. Now I'm super excited about it. Now I need to like watch for an opportunity to do something with it. You need a name tag day. Name tag day is not a bad thing, but yeah, yeah. so it's, it's, it's not that something goes wrong, it's more, the more common thing, and I, th I think this is true of any of these kind of um, more soft touch design efforts, is like, you c it's not about making things happen, it's about noticing things that would allow things to happen, and then getting out of the way. Um, that's, that's more the, the design pattern that we, we work from. Cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, and um, riffing off of that, I think one of the biases you're kind of taking advantage of, chill, that's cool. Oh. Um, one of the advantages you're, 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 one of the biases you're kind of taking advantage of there is called the framing effect, right? Because getting back to that whole notion of you don't want the first question to be what do you do for a living? Like I've been wrestling with that a lot. A friend of mine was talking about how apparently in a lot of countries that's a really, it, a lot of countries find it weird that in America that's a typical first question. Yep. It's kind of weird and a little gross <laughs> to them that that's the first thing we want to know about you is really one way or another of how much money do you make? Right? How much should I pay attention to you right now? Right? Um, and it frames, like if that's the opening question, it frames that conversation like a uh, networking conversation, which I think many of us have had enough of. Um, and whereas something else, right? And, I, and, and what I've been like trying to cultivate is like, what's a different question I could ask? Like literally someone I think is, yeah, someone in this room, I'm looking at you right now. Um, you may have noticed this. So I met someone here for the first time and I was struggling to not ask I was struggling to not ask him, uh, what do you do for a living? I was trying to think, what's a more interesting question? And so where I landed was, so what have you been up to lately? Like, that's why I asked that. It's because I wanted something more. And that then allows the other person, if they want to talk about their job, great. If they want to talk about how they love to ride a bicycle, great. Like, whatever it is, 
they can choose what yeah. the most interesting thing about them is versus me framing it as the, only, the most important thing for me to know about you because it's the first thing I'm asking is what do you do for a living, right? And so framing things in terms of not just your job means that, okay, now we can have like this curiosity. And that's kind of where, where I want to land because um, we probably have to finish soon. Um, is curiosity, because the other thing I noticed, you know, in the story you were telling was the response to what you did wasn't defensiveness or disinterest, it was curiosity. And I feel like that's one of the things that's kind of been cultivated here, and perhaps at this point just self-selected for, um, is it is populated by people who are, who are curious. And so if I go back to that thing before, um, Marty, you were talking about of like, you hear the attack and you get defensive, right? Um, Marche Greer gave an amazing talk at Confab this year, and I highly recommend you look it up. It's called Centering the Margins. Just Google Marche Greer Confab. It'll show up. Uh, and one of the things she was talking about is inclusiveness in tech and inclusiveness in content. And she was saying the conversations you're going to have to have to make that happen can be very awkward, right? Um, if you're like white male owner of a company who's putting out marketing materials that are supposed to appeal to African-Americans and no African-Americans contributed to the creating of that content, you are eventually going to have a problem. Um, the conversations you are going to have to have to fix that could be very awkward. And what she was saying was, instead of getting defensive, choose curiosity, right? That is a much better place to move from. Um, and so I feel like what's happening here more often than that is curiosity as opposed to defensiveness. So that will be, um, what I leave you with is, go be, more curious than you are defensive. Um, so I would like to thank uh, everybody for coming out tonight. Uh, I would like to thank my guest, Alex Hillman. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to Lou Hockman, who's been filming all of this. Let's give him a round. Um, uh, and thanks to the uh, Philly Podcast Festival for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas. We will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks, everybody.